Planned out before I retire three albums. The first one's French music. Retire from what? The university? From retire from playing and just oh, yeah, okay. just retiring in general. Oh, uh, I'm 54, so I imagine I got about 10 more years in me. Don't tell that to Doc Severinsen. Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, I, I just don't see myself doing this much past that. Yeah, um, my. My, my own teacher, James Darling, played in the Cleveland Orchestra, and from what I heard, the day he retired, he walked off the stage and handed his horn to a student, and that was it, right? He kept one trumpet for himself and, and retirement and everything, but I, I, I kind of see myself doing the same thing. You know, once I retire, I just kind of want Yeah, I just want to do something else. Got it. Yeah, yeah. I get it. I get it. Yeah. Yes. I um, recent. Have you heard of uh, Tim Kent? Tim Kent? Um... From Ohio? No, Michigan. Okay, then no. Oh, he, wait a minute. The guy that played in Chicago. Yes. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. I narrated his book. Oh. And it's now, it, I have it for sale. Okay. And he told a very similar story. He was younger than you, but probably about 47, 48. He just put in his notice. They hired John Hagstrom to replace him. And he did his last concert, and he never played again. Wow. <laughs> he put valve oil on his valves to just to keep them you know, from rusting and put it in the case. He's never touched it since. Unbelievable. And now he, uh, he's a world-renowned uh, historian for the French uh, fur trade in North America. Really? Isn't that something? That is something. Yeah. His book is called Within the Sphere of the Master, and he's got all kinds of photos. He's got a... Photo of him with all of his uh, French uh, you know, fur trader garb. That's pretty He's really cool. into it. Yeah. But his uh, love of trumpet and his dedication to trumpet is what made him successful as a historian. Just the discipline and the commitment to mastery. Yeah, I bet. Because he, he was tutored by Herseth. Yeah. You know, he wrote that book. Um, I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head. About his time in the orchestra and working with Herseth and, and all it's that stuff. It's probably the same book. Is it the same book? Yeah. Within the Sphere of the Master. <clears throat> it, 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 I don't think he wrote more than one. Oh, okay. So it would all have right. to be the same one. Well, then, then that's the book I, I, I just finished not too long ago. Really? Yeah, a couple of months ago. And it's been out for a while, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 05, I think. It was originally published. And I had no idea about it. I didn't know about the book. And then someone said, oh, you got to read this book because there's some really good, like, Bud Herseth stories and, and really good insight of him working with Bud and how much he just cherished working with Bud. And uh, I've always been a big Herseth fan. Mm. I, I took a couple lessons with him when I Did was you? in school. Yep. Cool, man. Um, talk about that. That was pretty interesting. Um, it's because he he taught my, my teacher, Jim Darling. Jim Darling studied with him as well. Uh, that's that was my in, um, and yeah, I mean, I've always been a big, huge fan of his. And he was the person that I went to to listen to in the LPs, right? Yeah. Cassettes and LPs, totally. Back in the day. Well, we should introduce you. 
Oh, sorry. This is James Newcomb, and I'm here with another James trumpet player, uh, professor at University of South Carolina, and we're here in the same room. What a treat to do a podcast with someone and like be able to shake hands and see people uh, and see <laughs> actually see people and share like the the energy that you have. It's ordinarily via Zoom, but here we are. I'm visiting family here in Columbia, and we were gonna have. Uh, Roundtable with somebody else who we'll have on the podcast another time. Didn't work out, but uh, here we are. We're just talking about trump trumpet life, how the two at times intersect, or how trumpet is life sometimes, for better or for worse. Absolutely. Uh, but uh, we ju we're just going to shoot the breeze until we get tired of each other, and uh, hope you guys listening in enjoy it half as much as, as we enjoy it. So anyway, we, uh, we we're just... Started uh, just kind of shooting the breeze a little bit, but uh, James has a plan. He's working on an album right now to do French music, which of course includes Legend, my personal favorite. And his uh, aspiration is to do three more albums before he retires from trumpet. And as you heard, once he retires, that's it. There's no more trumpet for James Ackley, sadly. But every all good things must come to an end. But uh, I don't think I'll be missed. <laughs> Well, who will be? I, I, I'm one of like, what, 300 trillion dozen? There's a lot of trumpet players out there. That's why I did this podcast. A lot podcast. of good ones. A lot of good trumpet players. A lot of good trumpet players that you just never get to know. You know, there's, there's ones that are out there that are either making albums or they've been promoted to make albums. But there's people that you don't ever hear of. I travel way too much, and I, I hear some extremely talented Toronto players that you would never, ever hear of them in your lifetime. Here in the States or elsewhere? Uh, well, elsewhere. Uh, Mexico, Costa Rica, Colombia, uh, Argentina. Sure, sure. Uh, Chile. I mean, there are some amazing players out there. Scary players. They just have incredible chops, technique like you just wouldn't believe. Mm -hmm can play uh, from a drop of the hat. They could play Mahler 5, or they, then they could play a mariachi tune, but sound like an authentic mariachi player, right? And sound like an authentic Mahler player. Yeah, and, okay. and sound like an authentic, literally someone who sat in the uh, orchestral yeah. chair for years. Huh. And then go play uh, what they call a baile, you know, like commercial music, either salsa or whatever, and just, you know, scream double A's all night. It's just unbelievable. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's, it's, it's a different world from, and why is it that players here in the United States, is it because we are taught to put ourselves in a box and we're just taught, well, you're a classical player, so you don't do other things. Why, why, why can they excel there, but we kind of compartmentalize ourselves here? Well, I'm sure that's a little bit of it. <clears throat> I think a lot of it has to do with their situation. They have to work in different fields in order to, to live. Um, orchestral musicians there, I mean, even here, there's only so many orchestras full-time, yeah. right? Yeah. So there it's even smaller. Hmm. Um, so they have to do what they have to do to in, order, in order to survive. They just love the instrument that much just to keep going. Hmm. So, so, but... but that's the power of the human brain. You know, we can 
we don't have to just say I'm a classical player and that's it. Oh, I limit myself to just that. Yeah. Huh. I mean, I, I personally love mariachi music and salsa is a favorite. Matter of fact, on the way over here, I was listening to some Mark Anthony in the car. Um, I just love it. You know, just the sound of the trumpet really, it's, it's enthusiastic. Maynard Ferguson comes to mind. Like one of the first things my band director gave me was a recording of Maynard. And Bill Chase followed that. It, it was not orchestral music. I didn't know I was going to be in orchestral music until actually I went to music school. Yeah. Yeah. And then I heard the Cleveland Orchestra for the first time. And I was like, oh, <laughs> so that's what that's about. This is, this is definitely what I want to do. So you grew up in Ohio? I grew up in Ohio, in Cincinnati. Ah, okay. Yeah. But uh, your first exposure was Cleveland. Yeah, my first, yeah, my first exposure was Cleveland. Even though I played in the Cincinnati Youth Symphony Orchestra, it was my final year of high school, I, I still didn't know what orchestral music was. And we didn't have enough money to actually go to hear the, the Cincinnati Symphony at the hall. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm from a very, well, I wouldn't say we were like dirt poor, but we were definitely not with means. Right. Um, and so going to college, that's the first one to ever go to college in my family. And I put myself through it. So not, not an easy task, especially back then. Um, I don't even know if it's easy now. <laughs> I'll, I'll bet it's more difficult now with yeah. the tuition prices being what they are. Yeah, that's, a, yeah, that's true. And where did you go to school? Uh, high school? Uh, college. Co- college. college. I went to Baldwin Wallace Conservatory. Baldwin Wallace? Baldwin Wallace. It's a small conservatory. Now it's part of, I think they changed the name to Baldwin Wallace University. Okay. But back then it was Bolden Wallace College, and they had a conservatory there. I think it has it holds the oldest uh, Bach library outside of Europe. Really? Yeah, the Riemann Schneider Bach Institute, I think it's called. Uh, don't quote me on that. Okay, uh, I won't. You have to look look that up. Um, but they have a, a very old, if not the oldest, the second oldest uh, Bach festival in the United States. Really? Yeah, I think the oldest is in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. So it might be the second oldest. And what town is this? This is in Berea, Ohio. Okay. And so all the all the guys from the Cleveland Orchestra were teaching at BW, you know, as an adjunct. So that's where I got to study with James Darling. Mary Squire was also a teacher there. She was the principal trumpet of the, let's see, it was the Ohio Chamber Orchestra, but that orchestra also played for the opera and the ballet. Mm-hmm. And she was a phenomenal player, phenomenal teacher, uh, really whipped me in shape. I knew very little by the time I got there. And after my first semester, I was studying with her my first semester, I finally knew exactly what uh, I was supposed to do in the Clark studies and exactly what I was supposed to do in my Arvin studies. And yeah, and she was very rigid in a grandma sort of way, you know? Sure. Because she, she was an older lady and she had this this grandma nature about her, but she was strict as anything. I mean, just, it was that way or, or the hype. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we have James Darling and then Mary Squire. Yeah. Okay, two new names I haven't heard before. Really? Yeah, yeah um, it's, it's kind of funny. That little school <clears throat> has produced so many great players. As a matter of fact, um, I believe there are two, at least one player in the Cleveland Orchestra today that studied with Jim Darling, if not two. I think there's two. Yeah, uh, Lyle, who's assistant principal, 
And the other one plays fourth trumpet, and it, I'm sorry, his name eludes me at the moment. Um, oh, he went to school with a really good friend of mine, too. Yeah, we can come back to it. Yeah. Uh, how did you get your start on trumpet? Well, I mean, I hurt my knee, so I needed something else to do. What did your hurt knee have to do with you were an athlete? Yeah, I was, yeah, I was an athlete, and hurt my knee and I just wanted something else to do and trumpet seemed to be like or music seemed to be that kind of that conduit right Uh, and then I was pretty much just given the trumpet okay no I I didn't choose it Uh, how was it given to you uh band director okay yeah the band director gave me the instrument said you need a trumpet player yeah I guess Or maybe he was like, yeah, well, he was a trumpet player himself, right? Yeah. But he must have been like, oh, you must have, looks like you have the chops for trumpet player. And I was small. I, I'm still really short, but but I was small then. I was, I think if the wind blew any more than 25 miles an hour, I would fall over. I was paper thin. So he just gave me that trumpet, right? Um, and it stuck. I don't know why, but as soon as I got that horn on my face, it's like, my introverted nature began to open up more and more. And the more I knew about music in general, the more I liked it. And I had not looked back. Mm-hmm. And you're how, how old when this happened? Oh my gosh. Um, 16? 16? Yeah. That's fairly late. Yeah. Compared to most kids. Yep. Wow. Okay. What what did you 15, play? 16. I mean, what what sport did you play? Well, mainly martial arts. Ah. But I ran track. Okay. I was big in track, but after after I hurt my knee, uh, the track thing was off. I I even <coughs> stopped martial arts for a while. Tried to get back into it. Damaged the knee again. I see. I'm. Uh, you have shorts on, so I can see a scar on your knee. Is that? Yeah. Injured? There's two. There's like this really? really big long one here. Yeah. And then there's the microscopic surgeries I've had over here. Good Lord. Yeah. So I've had three surgeries on my knee. Mm. I've ripped my patella tendon. Um, <laughs> I've ripped everything. I mean, ACL, MCL, whatever ends with an L. I probably ripped it, <laughs> tore it. So this is doing martial arts and, and yeah. various activities. Yeah. I was, just very, I was just very active when I was young. So you pick up the trumpet and it's just like, it's a, it sounds like it's like love at first sight. Yeah, but it was, it was very difficult for me, though. I mean, I was light years behind everybody, yeah. and yeah. I don't know if I really, even to this day, have like like some super musical talent. Um, I just think that I liked it so much that I just put the work into it and just didn't stop. You know, I, even through my <clears throat> master's degree, I was struggling to keep up with other classmates because they were just so much more advanced than me. You, you figure they, they started when they were in fourth grade or fifth grade or whatever, and they've had uh, access to all these musical festivals. And I never went to any festivals, not until I got to college. Um, so I didn't know it about any of that. My family, they're not musicians. Uh, like I mentioned, we weren't, ex- ex- we weren't of, uh, of means. Right, right. So, yeah, I, no vacations. Okay. Uh, just... Okay. You know, at home, that was it. Uh, if I did something, I did something through school. Mm-hmm. Uh, so 
music thing happened even through school. But then that, that carried through. That was what really sparked my interest. It was either that or something in math. I was thinking maybe um, um, engineering. Really? Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. I'm a musical guy, and math is not my forte. Oh, okay. Yeah. I can see that the, you, you see the comparisons between the two, but... Uh, well, you're creative, though. Yeah. So there's a huge comparison there. I think there's more of a comparison there than there is with math. I think, I think if I had uh, different teachers in school, I would have liked math more. Because I, I actually like it now as an adult. But I think the way it was presented to me as a kid, it was just dreadfully boring. And, and all I wanted to do was play my instrument. So, <laughs> well, history to me was like that in, when I was in school. Yeah, but then I hated history, but now I love history. But, yeah, when you're when you get get it taught the right way, like there's a there's an actual story in history rather than just a bunch of facts and figures and places and locations and dates. Yeah, that's the way history is taught, but we're not told like the story of the history. That's very true. Yeah, although I did have a really good. Um, Thinking back to high school, I had a, uh, at least one teacher who would tell a lot of really cool stories in, in history class. Yeah. Um, he was one of my favorite teachers. But my, my favorite teacher of all was my physics teacher. So this was my senior year of high school. And I, I still didn't know what was going to happen, what I wanted to do. I had a really good friend of mine, Herb Smith, who I played in the, uh, the Cincinnati Youth Symphony Orchestra together. Who was a trumpet player too, and he was like, "Hey man, you you should do this for for a living. You should go study this." And I'm like, "Yeah, I don't know if I'm good enough." He's like, "Yeah, you should go. I think you're good enough. Just go ahead and do it." And I'm, I'm like, "Can you make money?" And he's like, "Yeah, you can make money." He plays in the Rochester Philharmonic today. Oh, okay. Um, and he and he also plays really good jazz. So he's kind of goes back and forth in those in those worlds. Always has. I mean, even back in the day, he he was really <clears throat> drawn to that. <laughs> Um, but my physics teacher, he was, one day he got on the, on the, on his desk and he was like, what's the name of that movie with, uh, Robin Williams, uh, Carpe Diem. Carpe Diem? Yeah. Where he gets on his desk and he yells, Carpe Diem. The Poet Society? Yes. The Dead Poet Society. The Dead Poet Society. Yeah. So he, he had one of those Dead Poet Society moves where he got up on his desk and he yells, Carpe Diem. Right. And he's like, I'm talking to you guys out there that are seniors that are or juniors even that are looking towards the future. He's like, you need to do what you love. And that kind of what's really set my path down towards music rather than anything math oriented. I was like, well, if I'm going to do something, I better do something that I really love to do. Even though my family was like, uh, don't do that. <laughs> right. What are you doing? Going into music. What are no, you doing? Not a fan of that decision. <laughs> well, they didn't, they didn't know that world at all. Right. right. And yeah. Yeah. Unfamiliarity begets fear. Yeah. Which I had a lot of. Yeah. Going into it. I had no idea what I was. I, literally, I had like these, what do you call those training sites on dogs? Uh, blinders or yeah, what are the the, the horse, the, the horses? Exactly. Or just, they're just called they blinders. Called? Yeah. yeah. I, I don't know. That, that was me. Okay. I had, I had no idea what I was doing. Mm -hmm. I was just trusting in God Almighty to get me through this, right? Just get me through this and set me on the path. And Yeah. Yeah, man, that's all you need. <laughs> well, I mean, what you, need, what you need is just a little bit of faith that I can do. I don't, I don't know everything that's going to happen 10 years from now, but if I can get through this thing in the next 90 days, 
that's all I have to worry about, really. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what? It's been fun. Yeah. I've had a lot of fun. All right. Okay. So you get started on trumpet at 16 years old. Was it the sound? Was it the type of music that you were playing? Or No, it just handed to me. It was like... No, I'm, I mean, what, what, what really resonated with you? What, why, did, why did you fall in love oh, with it? Well, being able to, to, to make music mm-hmm. on any instrument was kind of cool. Okay. Um, and there was but, no piano. There was nothing else. It was just trumpet was the first instrument that you played. Yeah. I mean, I had a little guitar that I would mess around with and learn okay. by ear. Okay. Um, and sing to it. You wouldn't want to hear me. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it was, wasn't very good. Um, n- neither my guitar playing nor my, my singing was very good. Um, I, I just think it was like I made my own sound. And I think that's what really attracted me to it, that I could make this sound, right? Right. I just couldn't stop. Huh. Just one of those things. Wow. Yeah. I always tell um, my own kids, it was kind of like love at first sight. Mm-hmm. But I also tell like my students, love isn't good enough. It's a good start. Yeah. You know, it's a really good start because you have to have like this perseverance and dedication and um, be organized mm-hmm. and learn how to learn, which is probably the biggest thing that I had to, to learn myself. How do I learn? I mean, what do I need on my instrument? And then how do I go about learning that? Because like I said, I had so many deficiencies. I would sit down and I'd play with someone and um, I was not at that level. And I could hear it, right? I could hear it. I would miss more notes or I didn't have a mature enough sound or I didn't have the range that that he had or whatever whatever it was. That seems to me Double, triple tonguing yeah. Which did not exist when I got to uh, college. Okay. Um, had so, okay. So, so if you if you have all these deficiencies, what do you think uh, got you into um, Baldwin Wallace College? What, what what did your teachers hear in your audition that they said, "I'll take a chance on this kid"? I never asked them. I imagine they needed trumpets. I don't know. Um, you know, th- thinking back, I, I was a strong player. And I had a good range. Okay. Like I was hitting double A's <clears throat> my senior year of high school. Really? Yeah. So it was like two I, years later you can... Yeah, but okay. I was listening to Maynard Ferguson and Bill Chase and trying to play what they were playing on the cassettes. You know, I was I was trying to play what they were playing. I didn't... No one ever actually told me that that was actually difficult. Hmm. So I was just trying to imitate what they were doing. Seems to me like that could be a little dangerous, though, if you don't know the physics, oh, heck and yeah. the physicality of absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Did that ever did that ever become a problem physically to any injuries I mean, or anything yeah? Like that? There, there were times where I had some really sore chops. Yeah, sore chops are one thing, but yeah. Well, major- I think I'm lucky. I had a band director that was a trumpet player who had studied at UC, uh, the Cincinnati Conservatory of mm, Music, right? Who got me in touch with people there. And um, so my my final year of high school, I won this scholarship because I couldn't afford lessons. But I won this scholarship that paid for lessons with someone. And um, yeah, I mean, I'm just lucky to have that in. So his name was Perry Landmeyer. Perry Landmeyer uh, played in um, uh, 
in an orchestra in Florida for 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 many years. Um, and then he he introduced me to to his teacher, who was uh, Eugene Blee. Eugene Blee was the pr principal trumpet of the Cincinnati Symphony Orchestra for many years. Uh, so I, I got to take a couple lessons from him, and so I mean. I had some really good guidance along the way as well. Um, but like I said, I was, I had so many deficiencies. I was just starting out. I mean, there's only so much you can show someone who's beginning right. all these advanced techniques and it's just going to take a while for me to catch up. Yeah. It'd be interesting to know what, I'm sorry, who was, it was a Perry Landmeyer was Perry, the teacher? Yeah, yeah. At uh, Baldwin Wallace? No, that was, that, that was at uh, UC at Cincinnati. at Cincinnati. He was a grad student. Oh, okay. He was a grad student, and oh, I um, yeah, I got I got <clears throat> my lessons paid for, for through him. Wow, he yeah, was great. Whew. Wonderful. Yeah. But then, who uh, accepted you into Baldwin Wallace? Mary Squire, James Darling. Or? Um, let's see. Mr. Darling was not at the the audition, so it was Mary Squire and it was the jazz band director okay. who was at my audition, okay. whose name is not coming to me at the moment. Really super nice guy. Of course, he recruited me for jazz band. Because so you can play, play double A's. Yeah. Right. Yeah. All right. Okay, but I'm just trying to envision what would they be thinking. Like they, You're probably 18 years old. You're taking your entrance audition at Baldwin Wallace, and they hear these auditions. Like, it's not like you can hide the fact that you can't double tone. You can't. You can't hide that. If you can't double tone, Actually, you can't I, double tone. I remember hiding it pretty well. <laughs> I had a really good fast tongue okay. because I had to keep up with these other people that could double tongue. All right. So you're like you're like the hunt and peck typist that learns how to type really fast. <laughs> That's exactly how I type today. <laughs> yeah. All right. Can, but you know you do know how to double tongue today. No, yeah, sort yes. of. I, I can do it. Over. Sort of? Yeah, more or less. My triple tonguing <laughs> is better than my double tonguing. Really? It always has been. Okay. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't say it's an Achilles heel. Um, I can do it. Right? I can do it. Um, I don't do it as well as Rafael Mendez or even as uh, Wynton Marsalis can, yeah. can play. Yeah. I mean, I just I, I can't. Or Nakariakov. Ah, sure. It. Yeah. Yeah. But, but you that's, don't need to. Yeah, I don't need to. You that's, don't need it's to. Not my, it's not my thing. Don't need to sound like Nakariakov. Yeah. All right. But uh, I promise I'm going to get through this question. But what if they hear if they hear 18 year old James Ackley, and he's got some obvious deficiencies because you've only been playing for two years. You're probably in in many ways you weren't physically or mentally ready for the college level. Absolutely not. But what what did they hear in your playing or maybe your personality that said we can we can mold we this is a lump of clay that I can take and mold into a trumpet player? The only way I can answer that is looking at students that I hear mm. that are auditioning. Yeah. And I want enthusiasm. Um, I want them to be able to have some type of control over the instrument and make some type of music, whatever they're playing, whether it be an etude or a solo, I can hear some phrasing. And I think maybe... I showed a little bit of that, okay. you know, because I do remember they were they were asking me scales, and I knew my major scales, but I didn't know my minor scales. Um, and I also remember during the audition, and this is something that I continue to do today in auditions. I'll just pluck out some notes on the piano randomly, and I'll have the students sing them to me, 
just to see if they can match pitch. And I remember them doing that to me, and and I I guess I, I did pretty well, so I got in. Well, they, what I'm saying is that they saw promise beyond your deficiencies. Yeah. Or potential. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I think I was, <clears throat> I was also very uh, fortunate. I mean, it's not the only school I auditioned for. I auditioned at UC, Cincinnati Conservatory, got in. But I, I didn't want to stay in Cincinnati. Um, when you grow up in certain circumstances, you want to leave those circumstances and kind of like forge your own path. And that's what I, I saw. I, I saw music as that conduit, as forging my own path. Um, I got into uh, IU. Um, I also got into um, um, Eastman. Eastman was way too expensive. Um, IU, I was told that uh, the person's studio I was going to go into was going to retire soon. So uh, I decided to go to BW. Yeah. And BW gave me the, the, the largest scholarship, which was great because it's a private school. Yeah, I still had to pay some serious cash once I graduated. Yeah, paying for my education took many years, but it was worth it. It was worth it. Okay, I have to just get some clarity on because we threw a lot around a lot of names here. So um, sorry, <laughs> James Darling, Mary Squire are all at Baldwin Wallace. Yes, Harry Landmeyer was at Cincinnati. Yeah, he was a grad student. And you and you took lessons from him with on a scholarship. Yes, when you were in high school. Yeah, when I was high school, it okay. was it was through the prep program, the okay. preparatory okay. program. Yeah, and then his his teacher was Eugene Blee. He was a professor at, at uh, Cincinnati College Conservatory. Who also played in the symphony. He he used to be the principal trumpet of the symphony. Yes. Okay, I'm writing all this down. At that time, I think he was retired from the orchestra. Okay. Do they call it the CSO Cincinnati Symphony? Yes, they do. Really? Yeah. There's a lot of CSOs confusing. out there. I'll bet. Charlotte Symphony Orchestra, Charleston Symphony Orchestra, Chicago Symphony Orchestra. Right. Yeah, Chattanooga Symphony Orchestra. <laughs> Any city that starts with a C. And has a symphony orchestra. Absolutely. So, yeah, but I don't know. Chicago, in my mind, is always the most prominent for obvious reasons, I guess. Yeah, mine too. Yeah. All right. Change gears quickly, or dramatically, I should say. Okay. You've spent a lot of time outside the United States. Absolutely. Your wife, what I understand, is Mexican? Yes. She's okay. from Aguas Calientes. Say that again. Aguas Calientes. Hot Springs. Aguas Calientes. Yes. Perfect. Okay. Yeah. Once you get the... Say it slowly, and you know the two words. Makes sense. Yeah. Aguas Calientes. Okay, nice. They, um, you would normally say Aguas Calientes, like two different words, but... It, the city is one word. It's just Aguas Calientes. Okay. So yeah. it's like it's like hot springs without a space between them. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All that's right. basically what it is. They have a lot of, uh, there's some thermal waters around the area. It's in the, uh, it's in the, the mountains, the, the middle plains of the, of the, um, of Mexico. It's about a mile above sea level. Okay. And then did you get a job there playing? Yeah. My first job was, was playing in Mexico. That's where I met her. And then uh, I was actually fired from that job. <laughs> That's okay. a good story. I've been fired from jobs too. Yeah. It's well, the conductor was an American. And um, he would say some pretty disparaging things against Mexican people. Um, 
and it just really did not sit well. And at that time, I started dating my wife and really getting into the Mexican culture. And uh, yeah, it just, it irritated me. Um, so I, I ended up leaving there and going to uh, Mexico City. And I was playing in Mexico City for, for a while. And, and then finally, um, won another audition for the Bogota Philharmonic in Bogota, Colombia. And uh, so I asked my wife to marry me, and yeah, I think we were married one week. The next week I was gone, and I get to see her three months later after she went through the visa process, and yeah. I can relate to that. Yeah. Anyone who's listened to this show, I've uh, shared a few things about my, my own wife. We're getting a visa for her to come to the United States, and it's, uh, it's frustrating. It is frustrating. Imagine when we came back to the United States, it was even more frustrating. Because we had an American who was married to a Mexican outside of the city that they were living in in Mexico. They, we got married in Jesus Maria, which is like this, this town outside of, of town. <laughs> um, small municipal town. I mean, it was, yeah. back then, if you sneezed, you missed it. Okay. Uh, now it's part of the city yeah. of Aguascalientes. Um, then we lived in Bogota, right? which is Colombia, where she's Mexican, I'm American. We go to American embassy. Our son is Colombian because he was born in Colombia. He was adopted. Ah. We, we, couldn't, we were told we couldn't have kids. I see. Uh, years later, we, we actually had another kid. Uh, but uh, our first son was adopted. So trying to get visas for everyone was, they just couldn't wrap their head around why there were so many nationalities, what I was doing in Bogota. I mean, it was just, yeah. And this is, this, this was amidst some of the drug trade, I guess, you know, um, through the early nineties, all the way up to, uh, 2000. Right. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, dealing with the state department, they have, a, they have a different set of values than we do. They do. And, and, uh, I understand, I do understand that, but when it involves an American citizen, then I think things need to be a little more streamlined. One would hope. I am, and we're getting off topic slightly, but my wife is Iranian, <clears throat> which adds a whole another layer of com complexity to our situation because she's the sweetest person on the face of the planet, but if you're on the S list of the US government, you know, it's just if you're in the wrong country, then yeah. She hasn't lived there in 30 years. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Yeah. If you hold a passport from a certain country that is uh on the outs with the US government, it's problematic. It is. So we're dealing with that. Anyway, but that's not why we politics aside. <laughs> yes. It's not my favorite topic. Uh all right. Now you said something before we were we started recording, and I said, "Hold that thought because I want to get this on, on the, on the iPhone." Is something along the lines of uh, you want it? You you want to come back to the United States because you wanted your children to have certain opportunities that you had when you were a kid, but you've come to since. And I'm I'm probably butchering what you said, but you've come to realize that you don't necessarily need to be in a certain spot. To have for your children to have a good upbringing can you yeah exactly or even happiness right okay um i mean i was really happy in the orchestra um i left the orchestra to come back to the united states because i thought 
that's what my my kid needed at the time. We only had one kid at that time. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, it'd be kind of nice to be back and he could be closer to his family. Um, lo and behold, I just never really thought about thought it through completely. I mean, me being in the same state even as my family, which I have never been. Never been even close to my family. Uh, they're still in Cincinnati. Uh, I was in Connecticut at, uh, at UConn before I was here at USC or U of SC now. Mm-hmm. Um, not to get it confused with the other USC on the, on the West Coast. There's another USC? Yeah. I'm just kidding. <laughs> the USC, I guess. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I just realized that, or not just, but I came to realize during my lifetime, I, I could have been happier, you know, staying in the orchestra or just staying put and just raising my child in that culture that there could have been just just as easily a happiness there as we have here. And I didn't need to do that, hmm. you know, especially with travel today. It's really easy to travel today. Uh, visiting my parents was easier flying from Columbia to Cincinnati than it is trying to get into a car, right? Um, because here things are just so much more busy, especially when the kids were younger. And you were involved with, I don't know how many other activities and mm. trying to make a weekend trip to go to Cincinnati was almost impossible. And now they have their own lives and, oh, yeah, it was just easier back then because we could just, all right, this is the time we're going to go because you have to make that commitment. Yeah. You know, it's just easier. I don't know. Um, but yeah, I've realized, realized, you know, just living life that. It doesn't matter where you're at. You can make life happy. Hmm. Doesn't matter where you're at. It's who you're with. Absolutely. Hmm. Absolutely. And, and I've been married for 26 years to probably the most uh, blessed person on the planet who has put up with my stuff. <laughs> she's not a musician. God bless her. Uh, and she's really just kind of stuck it out with me. Huh. Yeah. How'd you two meet? Um, she worked in the institute, the cultural institute of the, of the city of Aguascalientes. Yeah. And I would see her at these, um, what do you call them? They're, they're called brindis, uh, where you have wine tastings and things like that for the orchestra. Sure. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And she was just there just, um, writing reports for the uh-huh. institute and, or writing articles or columns for the magazine, taking photos, doing interviews. Um, and yeah, she caught my eye. How did you explain what you did for a living to her? Well, she knew who I was and what I did. Okay. Uh, but still wouldn't go out. It took four tries. It took me getting to know who her friends were ah. to kind of intervene. <clears throat> yeah. But I won in the long run. So that's all. Hey. <laughs> and you didn't have to know how to double tone. Nope. Not on her trumpet. No. She had... She has no idea what I do or why I do it. How that's that's interesting that she would stick with because a uh, life of a trumpet player, especially one that has traveled the way you have, it's not easy. Even if you're just in one place, it's a very difficult uh, profession to understand Absolutely. if you don't do it. Absolutely, and and she she has struggled with that. Hmm. I mean, I mean, she's only human, right? Of course, uh, she struggled with it, but um, no, she stuck it out. I mean. Maybe it's more old-fashioned there, uh, that their culture is once you marry, you marry for life. 
you know, and I'm kind of old fashioned in that sense as well, uh, especially having grown through a divorce when I was young, not, not nice, not, not, it's not great to go through. Um, so we've been, we've been together for 26 years. Matter of fact, it'll be 26 on the 13th. Today's the 8th of August. It'll be 26 years on the 13th. Five days from now. Yeah. Oh, congratulations. Thanks. Wonderful. Yeah. I think I'll grill hot dogs or something. I'm just kidding. Maybe have some hot water. <laughs> have some hot springs. Hot springs. Yeah. Well, uh, uh, tell us about uh, what life is like here in South Carolina. Uh, let's see. It's it's much more laid back. Yes. Yeah, it's laid yes. back. Um, summers are brutally hot and humid. Um, there was a, a week or two this summer where it was just disgusting. Near 100, 101 degrees. And our, of course, our air conditioning went out on the, I think it was the second floor. That's where all the bedrooms are. Um, and, and right now, my downstairs air conditioning is out. I'm waiting for the capacitor to come in. I ordered it so I can install a new capacitor. Uh, but yeah, summers are brutal. But the cool thing is I get to grill out, you know, 365 days a year if I want. Sure. Yeah. Well, what's the music scene like? Uh, the music seems good. It's strong. There's a lot of really good, strong players in the area. Um, there's the South Carolina Philharmonic. I played with the South Carolina Philharmonic. I've been playing with them for well, quite a number of years now. Um, other than that, I mean, I play with uh, Charleston and, and Charlotte. Um, and then anywhere else that, that'll have me. Uh, I, in, in recent years, I've gone to um, Florida Orchestra. Um this past, I think it was end of April, beginning of May, I played with Houston. Um, so I get to, 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 to play some, you know, um, which is great because for me that is considered like um, my artistic license at school. You know, this is my research. Okay. You know, performing in, in these different groups and such, which is kind of nice. Um, and yeah, I mean, the, the, the teaching aspect keeps you really busy. Yeah. Yeah, it depends on, I mean, every semester is different on how many students are in, a, in the studio at any given time, uh, especially if, if you have a lot of education majors. Once they're a student teaching, you know, numbers drop and, and things like that. But so it's, it's just kind of up and down. Um, there's kind of a down moment right here after COVID. But um, uh, we should have a larger studio this semester, and I suspect in, in future years it'll start going yeah. up again yeah okay um yeah I, even though the the life is laid back uh I, i've still been kind of busy um it's been great for our family you know the kids have had great education and our oldest kid is living up in uh, like spartanburg i think um mm-hmm. it's a couple hours from here yeah but we don't get to see him very often okay. uh, but he's up there he's got his own life and you know he's, he's living it he's still single as far as i know i think he's dating but Keeps it under wraps. Okay. Um, our youngest is, uh, he's studying biochemistry here at the university. Um, he's dating. He's got a girlfriend. Um, wife has a husband. The husband has a wife. Yeah. Now, sure. she, she works as a teacher. Great. Um, she teaches, uh, she, she's a teaching assistant with the special needs department at the high school, which she absolutely loves, you know. 
like I said, she, she's blessed. She has patience beyond measure with me. So you can imagine what she's like with the kids. Cool. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, this is James Newcomb. I'm with James Ackley, and we're just wrapping up here. But before we do, I have a couple of rapid-fire questions for you that pertain to um, like music performance, mm-hmm. uh, like performing at a peak high level. And I think that you and I did something similar to this uh, about five years ago for a series I called Secrets of the Musical Mind. And I've been playing some of the, and for some reason I, I lost yours. I wasn't able to hang on to yours. For I probably time. lost mine too. <laughs> so <laughs> mentally, anyway, I lost it. Right. So it's we hilarious. have to we have to get uh, James Ackley's answers to these questions, and I don't have them in front of me, but I do recall most of them. So okay, I'm going to do my best to recall the. the well, questions. you tell me if I get it wrong. <laughs> I, I it's not remember. like I can compare from five years ago. <laughs> This is music. There is no wrong answers, right? That's what we're supposed to believe. All right. Let's say it is five minutes before you're going on stage and you're going to play like a major solo. Like let's just say Mahler 5 because that's that's pretty prominent. Mm-hmm. What are you doing five minutes before the downbeat? Probably went to the restroom. Okay. That's number one. So I, I'm not feeling anything physically that's uncomfortable. Got it. You know? So first thing is restroom. Um, no, I'm, I'm probably sitting here imagining all the good things that I've, I've done and, and all, how I've sounded in rehearsals and maybe some things I wanted to change during the rehearsal. Um, uh, just really centering myself, uh, breathing. I'm probably doing a couple deep breathing exercises just to keep calm. Yeah. I, I, I have tried, um, beta blockers in the past I cannot use those those really affect my I can't produce saliva when I take beta blockers I just can't Mm -hmm. so I'd rather be as nervous as all get out and produce saliva than not produce saliva and not feel anything at all so I don't don't take anything so I, I what I've learned is just you know slow breathing and maybe just talking to myself you know on the inside of my head like I said, just going over some things that I liked, some things I need to change, and just, um, I don't know, general positivity. You know? Just like affirmations. Yeah, affirmations. Okay. Yeah, right. just, trying to, just trying to remain centered. Uh, okay. What is the best advice you've ever received to uh, deal with performance anxiety? Uh, the best advice is you're going to be nervous, so just... Just deal with it. You're going to be nervous. Just deal with it. Yeah, that is natural. It's natural to be nervous. If you're not nervous, you, one of my, my, my teachers told me, if you're not nervous, then you probably don't care much. So yes. if you're nervous, you care. So you should relish that. So I have. I've always, if I don't feel nervous for something, I'm always worried. It's like, oh, is this the time I'm going to like just completely just fall apart during the concert? <laughs> um, I, I like it when I have like, a little bit of at least a little bit of nerves where I'm just like ooh you know I, I don't even know it's nerves I think it's just anxiousness to play like I want to play the music yeah. you know present it yeah and it's almost a challenge too like mm. how how much better can I play this than I played it in the rehearsals mm. and then the next night how much better can I play it that night than I played it the night before yeah you know it's almost like a challenge all right 
All right, this is the last question that I can remember. Okay. Uh, but it's like a dream scenario, uh, and, and you can just take all the license that you want, uh, repertoire, who you're playing with. It doesn't. It doesn't have. Doesn't even have to be any ensembles that we're familiar with. It could be trumpet and a kazoo and an accordion. It could be whatever. Uh, where is your dream performance? What are you playing? Who are you playing with? Well. The easiest way to answer that is on the trumpet and anything, particularly by Mahler, <laughs> right. with any orchestra. Okay. But I, I can share one memory that really sticks out in, in my lifetime. So I'm in Bogota, the Bogota Philharmonic. Um, Francisco Rettig is the conductor. He's a Chilean who studied with Celebedaci, loved Mahler. So we, we played, if not all the Mahler symphonies, most of them when I was there. Um, Mahler three, uh, post horn solo, where I literally had to go behind the audience up, I don't know how many flights of stairs, play out of this little tiny window, right? Where I couldn't really keep up with his beat because I was so far away that I just played and he went with me, mm -hmm. right? But the concert was amazing. Mm -hmm. And I'd never really played anything like that by myself I was still pretty young and um, I didn't know if I could do it and you know he he pulled me up front I got flowers I mean you wouldn't think you would I, give the trombone player flowers he's got the biggest solo but uh, no I got flowers and solo bowels and all kinds of stuff I mean it just really gave me a lot of confidence going forward from that moment on and I was like, ah, maybe I can do this, you know? So that has, has been the biggest moment of my entire career. Really? Yeah. That was years ago. That was, that was years ago. I've had many great moments in my career, but that just stands out amongst any other memory. Yeah. And the conductor, we're still really good friends today. Matter of fact, I call him dad because he was kind of like a father figure to me. I was so young. And um, he just took me under his wing and really trusted me and let me do what I wanted to do. And if he wanted something different, he had a, a certain way of speaking to me where he could get it out of me very quickly. And we just have a great friendship today. It's wonderful. Matter of fact, I went to, um, this is before uh, COVID, maybe two years before COVID, went to Chile to, a, uh, to an orchestra where he was conducting. He had me down there. Um, I conducted one week, uh, the like a brass ensemble, and played with the brass ensemble. And then the other week, I played principal in the orchestra. We did um, Sibelius II, which I absolutely love. Um, and yeah, I mean, it was just it was so good to play under his, his baton again. <laughs> yeah, so we're still really good friends. Man, well, this is great, and we didn't even get into your. Um your French album, we, can, can we take like two minutes just to describe? Oh, sure. I mean, it's basically a bunch of uh, French music that maybe a lot of younger players are not familiar with, of, like um, uh, Penkin, uh, the Marceau de Concert, uh, the, the one that goes bam, badam, 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 that one. Right. <laughs> um, legend, of course, because right. you can't think of anything French without legend in it. <laughs> Um, so that's probably the most popular thing. Uh, the Ubo is also another very popular sonata, the Ubo sonata. 
Um, uh, Jolivet, Air de Bravure. And why? It's only a minute long or, or a minute and two seconds long. Well, my teacher, Jim Darling, he also recorded that on one of his albums. And he really influenced me big time. And that album really sticks with me. Hmm. And that's on there. Okay. Also, uh, the um, Ebert Impromptu, that's also on his album. I'll be recording that. That's kind of an homage to him, I guess, as well. I think the, the entire French thing started with an homage to him, with those two pieces. Um, and the Gabay, or Gabay, I don't know how to pronounce his name because I'm not French. Uh, but the Sonatine. All right. Because I just, I like the tune. You know, it's very tuneful. A um, lot of technique to work out, of course, with anything that's French. So it's a lot of those types of, of uh, those types of, of tunes or music, if you will. And of course, it's all French. Um, and then I've got another one, all Latin. Um, I did a, a Latino CD years ago, 2006 maybe, 2007, uh, called Lirico Latino. So I always wanted to do a Lirico Latino too. And I did all the arrangements on that CD, so I'm doing all the arrangements on this CD. Um, and then let's see, what's the other one? The other one is some music that some colleagues have, have written for me. Um, one, uh, matter of fact, sonata, one of the sonatas is by uh, Alan Vizzuti because Alan Vizzuti was working with me here for four years. Yes. And we became uh, uh, pretty tight in this time here. And, and I remember we were in Argentina at a festival there and I played one of his sonatas for him because I knew he was going to be there. You know? I, I try to do that to my, you know, with my, my friends, give them something of, of their own and just say, well, this is my interpretation, and, but I'm doing it for you, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and he liked it. I asked him if I could record it one day and he's like, gave me the thumbs up. So I want to do that. Um, so yeah, there's some, some newer music, I guess you would say on that one. Hmm. Yeah. 20th century, 21st century music. I'm still stuck in the 20th century. Yeah. It was a good century. It was, yeah. In some ways. And the 80s were the best. <laughs> All right. Were they going to bring back the 80s? That's what I want to know. They had, the, they had good music back then. They did. And the drum corps was good back then. I don't know if you follow drum corps. No, I'm but sorry. But my brother and I, we both did drum corps. And we were just talking about yesterday about how drum corps was so d- different. Like it was likable back in the 90s when mm-hmm. we did it. These days, it's not so much. Well, I have many students that... that <clears throat> do drum corps have done or do right and they love it um they like it if the kids like it i'm all for it well i do remember someone telling me when i was in high school about drum corps and i went to do the audition and they said well in order to do this you have to pay yada 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 and we were like you didn't have money i didn't have any money got it so i was like okay i mean my trumpet when i went to college was borrowed from my band director Hmm. he loaned me his trumpet so i didn't even have my own trumpet when i went to school that's how poor it was. And yeah, I, I went to school and I worked my way through school. I worked during the summers, you know, just to start buying equipment, mouthpieces. Mm-hmm. Got to have mouthpieces. All right. And uh, when is the French album going to come out? Well, I'm going to start recording that probably this year. Um, okay. If not at the end of this year, uh, then probably like May of next year. Okay. Because that's when the hall will most likely be free. Got it. Yeah. 
It's when the hall's free. That's <laughs> that's when you record. Got it. Well, I'd love to um, sit down with you again sometime. Absolutely. Maybe maybe when the, a lot of fun. when the album is done, we can. Because I always like to pick people's brains about albums because I find it fascinating. Because sometimes um, people will make an album knowing that it's not going to hit the top forty. Oh, I, and, and I'm assuming that none of my albums are ever going to hit anything. Right. So, I just do it for me. So I just yeah, okay. So that's that's what I find fascinating is why do people put the time and the effort into something like that when they know it's likely not going to be listened by to that, that many people. Yeah. Well, I mean, if it helps one student mm. or if one person gets any sort of pleasure from it, right. then it was all worth it. Well, you mentioned uh, Jim Darling. He had an album. It's probably in the status that we're talking about right now, but it influenced you. Yeah, it yeah. completely influenced me. Yeah, his yeah. playing was just dynamite, electric, out there, you know, very much like uh, Herseth, just right there. Okay. Whether it was piano or forte, you felt it, you heard it. You know, and his music making always, it went somewhere. It did something to you. It raised the hairs on, on your arm. Mm. All right. Well, in the spirit of leaving the people wanting more, let's, uh, let, let's uh, pull the plug on this podcast, but definitely let's, let's keep the door open for another, another one in the future. Sounds great. And since we're, in the, since we're in the same room, we're going to shake hands. Say it's been a pleasure to have you, man. That actually happened. <laughs> we have to get a photo. Now, but, now we have to go have a COVID test. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> have to end the podcast on that, don't yeah. you? No, it's all right. Well, thanks everybody for listening and thank you, James Ackley, for being on the show, man. Thanks for having me. Well, that is a wrap for this episode of Trumpet Dynamics. Telling the story of the trumpet in the words of those who play it. Are you a true listener? Visit TrumpetDynamics.com to learn how you can be notified each time a new episode is published. And if you really like what you hear on this podcast, the best way to support me and the show is to subscribe to my daily email newsletter, where I share what I learn and observe in life in an infotaining way. Many folks have told me they enjoy the emails, and I think you will too. Again, the best way to subscribe to the email newsletter is to visit trumpetdynamics.com. Thank you for listening to this episode, and we'll be in your earballs soon.